And then finally, it, it removes all compassion and all benevolence and charity from our community. You know, knowing Jesus is critical if we want to uh, be a compassionate and caring community. I would postulate that any attempt to be a compassionate community without Christ or knowing Jesus personally is an impossibility. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn to critically think for yourself and develop your faith. We are here to be your guides, but ultimately you are the ones that have to do the work. You have to decide what you believe and why you believe it. And the world is going to tell you a lot of things about who you should believe and why you should believe it. But we're here to help you develop your critical thinking skills so that you can decide for yourself what that is. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jesse Mayer. I will be your host and we cannot do the Salty Pastor Podcast without the salty pastor himself live from boston next to some salt water dr douglas peak hey everybody it's so good to come to you live from boston i'm loving this i, I think maybe what we got to do is do a world tour where we send me to all of the these places where no, I, I think you've got it backwards pastor from. you need to send me to all the places oh okay we got to get that straight so yeah, you can see the view today if you're watching online or on YouTube. It's just gorgeous right here on the bay. You know, I'm in the north end of Boston where liberty began. The American Revolution was started here. So it's really quite a uh, uh, historical site, and I'm excited about it. Awesome. Well, we are in the middle of our Jesus Loves Me series. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, on Tuesday talked about the part of the song that says this, I know, um, every follower must come to know Jesus personally. It's not what you know, but who, you know, basically. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and this is a unique or kind of a special part of Christianity in that it is the only thing that, or it's one of the things that makes Christianity unique. Um, yes. that there is this invitation to have a personal relationship um, yes. with Jesus. So the second largest belief system in the world is Islam and Islam does not teach you mm -hmm. that you are to know Allah personally. You're simply to That's submit correct. yourself to Allah's will. Hinduism mm -hmm. and its nephew, uh, uh, Buddhism, um, teach that Nirvana is lost to self. So there is, uh, no you that gets to know anything personally. Um, and then finally atheism and scientific materialism believe that there's just no you that is you anyways. And so you can't yeah. have personal relationships. <laughs> there's not a spiritual component of your, of your psyche, no soul. Yeah. So there's nothing yep. personal about you. You're just a cosmic yeah. accident and some parts that got put together randomly. Yeah. And you know, that's, what's unique about Christianity as a belief system is it teaches that God came to earth in order to restore you into a relationship with him. You know, the essence of the creation account in the first uh, two chapters of Genesis is that we were created to walk with God, to be with God. And that's why Christianity cannot be a religion as we define religion today. Now, in the past, religion was defined differently than it is today. But in the way we define it today, Christianity really can't be a religion it can only be a relationship with God through faith. And so that's the essence of it. Well, and I think it's even, even the roots of Christianity come from Judaism, right? And mm -hmm. when 
back when they left for the Exodus, they were going through a lot of this ritualistic atonements that they had to do. Yes. I just got done. Mm -hmm. I'm in the beginning of Leviticus and that's all they're talking about is, okay, you got this <laughs> offering and you got this offering. And that kind of aligns yeah. with what a lot of other religions did. And Christianity yeah. comes at it a different way where he's like, I, it's important that you have morals and beliefs, but ultimately it's about me and you. It's not about you going through all of these ceremonial rites and trying yeah. to do these things anymore. It's a, let's have yeah. a conversation together um, without mm -hmm. all of the pomp and circumstance in between. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, it was in essence, it was like, well, if you want to be in relationship with me, there's a lot of things that have to take place because there's so much standing in the way between you and I, because and we, so, we were so sinful and messed up. Yeah. Because we invited sin. And, and a lot of people don't realize that when God separated himself, it was an act of love, not an act of hate. In other words, uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, he records how he was brought into the presence of God, and his first response was, woe is me, is because I am a man of unclean lips. And his point was, I'm going to cease to exist. I can't be in his presence without, you know, I'm going to be toasted. And so by separating himself, what he did is he was saving us by doing that, because when you're flawed, you know, flaws cannot be in the presence of perfection. Mm. And God is perfect in his holiness. And so... And so when he separated himself, he was protecting us. And so he was showing in the Old Testament law that there's all these things that have to take place for atonement, meaning in order to bring you back into a right position in order to have a relationship with him. And Jesus basically came and said, look, all that was a foreshadowing of me. I am the lamb, the sacrificial mm. lamb. I am the one that redeems us. And because of what Jesus has done now, any and everything has been removed from between us and God, because now we have the righteousness of Christ over us. And so that, that's a big deal. And, and that's really uh, the essence of how Christianity is so different than any other belief system. It's mm. all about knowing God. Right. So why is it so important? I mean, you kind of covered this, but why is knowing Jesus the most important part of this? Well, I, I think the practical implications is what we try to do on Thursdays is, is that it's impossible to know yourself unless you know Jesus first. Uh, and really, this comes down to two options. The first option is I can believe what the world says about me. And there is plenty of positions on this. Or you can believe what God says about you. And if if you were to look at every issue in the world today, I think it's based on what we call a false identity. In other words, it's a false understanding of who we are as human beings. Um, the self-improvement is impossible unless you actually know who you are to begin with. It's like the map. You know, A map is really worthless until you know you find that little dot on there that or star that says you, you are, are here, here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know and I, i've had to do that a lot recently you know when we're driving through new hampshire or driving through vermont and all these windy roads and you're in the mountains and thick woods and it's like i have no idea where i am unless i see that little blue dot that says here you are and as soon as i find myself then i oh okay now i know where i can go or would like to go or need to go and in the same way you cannot have any improvement of yourself 
unless you know who you are. That is the first step in any direction towards growth, towards maturity, towards development of your character. And so this is really critically important because the self-improvement industry, you know, is a multi-billion dollar industry. And many things in this industry are helpful. They can provide short-term relief or short-term success or maybe even a short-term improvement. But unless they are built upon the proper foundation, all of these techniques, methods, and strategies become ineffective. They work for a very short period of time. They're like a crash diet, mm. but it, you can't live that way. And in, in other words, they are non-transformable. In other words, they allow you to do something to get a quick change, but they don't actually transform you, okay? And so I, I can only truly change once I know who I truly am. And, and that's really what coming to know Jesus is all about. It starts with, who am I really? I need to know who I am. And I, I got to stop listening to who the world says I am and listen to who he says I am. And that only happens when you come to know him. And that's why it is so important. Knowing Jesus personally is about knowing your own human nature mm. at its core. All right. That's what's critical. What is my human nature at its core? It's all about what drives me. What is it that influences my behavior? What is it that uh, directs my decision making? How do I make decisions and why do I make them that way? Now, here's an interesting side note. This is why the scientific revolution could only take place in a culture built upon Christianity. Because science attempts to eliminate observational bias, right, and stick only with the facts, things that can be empirically proven to be true. Well, where did the notion come from that in order for something to be true, you had to eliminate observational bias? Well, it only came from Christianity and its ethos, because in Christianity, the definition of human nature is that our flawed human nature interferes with our judgment, interferes with our observation, interferes with our decision-making process. So the necessity to know yourself is critical for any type of human growth or any change in your own life that's lasting or any healing or restoration in your own life that will actually be effective. That's why knowing Jesus is so critical, because if you don't know him, you can never know yourself. Well, and I think that's a lot of what we see in the self-improvement industry is you're basically patching holes, right? It's like, yeah. they're mm -hmm. like, oh, you have this issue. Let me help you by, you know, five yeah. quick steps to have a better, yeah. you know, day or whatever. Yeah. Right. But how, it's, to, how to hack your pro how to hack your procrastination. Right. And it's like, <laughs> that's fine. But then it's like, you're not addressing the real issues. Right. It's sort of patchwork. It's you're treating a yep. symptom rather than the cause. Right. And exactly. that's what a lot of um, these self-help books are doing because they don't, they're either choosing not to, or they don't believe that Jesus is the real way to, f you know, heal those deep rooted issues. They're just like, well, mm -hmm. you know, take some of those drugs, do this thing, and then you're going to be great. And so it's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe there's other options 
don't know. But I mean, yeah, I think exactly. ultimately it's kind of we're going back to what you've been talking about, which is mm-hmm. fixing that upstream issue, you know, putting energy and effort and and investing in that upstream because that's what's going to help us in our downstream daily lives. Yeah. And, you know, what's really interesting is the other thing I've found being here in Boston, it's just really reaffirmed it for me is that freedom and liberty is based upon knowing God personally. It really is. The entire constitution of the United States is based on God's definition of human nature. Mm. You know, that the, the constitution is the most unique political document that's ever been written. And what's amazing is that it is based upon all these assumptions and or presuppositions. You're like, okay, well, what are the assumptions? What are the presuppositions? And you know what they are? Unlike any other political document that's ever been written, the the presupposition is that human nature cannot be trusted. And when humans form government, government in and of itself should never be fully trusted. Don't ever give any one person all the power Mm. because human nature can't be trusted. Consequently, we're going to divide power between three branches and these three branches should uh, basically counter each other. It's called a check and a balance. And so if you look at, uh, at our founding documents, that was the whole point. When you read what the founding fathers said, they had a definition of human nature that was 100% Judeo-Christian, meaning it was God's definition of human nature, not any other belief system, philosophy, or religious definition of human nature. And so that, that's really significant, I think. Now, you know, I, I, this brings up a unique point because I've been asked uh, by some people about this. It's like, well, how can you speak the way you do about our founding documents and about your, your belief in human nature and the influence of Christianity on the formation of our government and then tell people that you don't care who they vote for? Like our church, we, it's like, we never tell you who to vote for. We want you to vote. We really want you to participate in the process. Mm. But how, how is it that we, we can do that? Well, it's because I believe in the efficacy of the original finding doc- founding documents of our nation. You know, it's really interesting. A research firm just decided they wanted to look into why our politics are so divisive right now. Why is it that people are on one side or the other and they can't stand the other side? What they found is that it's really interesting is that 80 percent of do- uh, Democrats believe that Republicans are fascists, that they're Nazis. Isn't that interesting? And like 60% of Republicans think that Democrats are communists. Or so, so, boy, that's what I call polarization. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's so far apart. No, nobody sees the person on the other side of the aisle as a fellow American anymore. Well, how did we get to this place? I mean, how did that happen? Well, I think what happened was, is this research firm pointed out is that Americans are fine with using the government to force their opinions on other Americans. Whereas our original founding documents were based on the notion that no human being should be trusted (laughs) with forcing their opinion on another human being. (laughs) This is the essence of liberty. It's that... You know, the Constitution and everything limits the government. The government can't do that. The government can't do this. The government can't do that. Well, today we see people wanting the government 
you know, to force other people to comply. So in essence, I support downstream political efforts. I do. I support people who get involved in politics. But in reality, it is not getting the wrong person out of office or the right person into office when the, that's going to make the difference, especially when the underlying ethos is that the checks and balances need to be torn down, you know? And we've seen this, and that is, is that we elect a Democrat uh, president. The first thing the president does is come in and sign all these executive orders, right? Well, this is a usurpation. It's a, it, it is not the way our republic is set up. And then a Republican comes in, and then they sign all these executive orders. So we see it. They're in there. a race to, every year there's more. They're in a race yeah. to beat the last one's amount yeah. of executive orders. Yeah, and then they want to rescind all the old ones that were written. You see, you see how um, both people on the Democratic side and people on the Republican side are okay with tearing down the checks and balances. You see this in Congress. When, when Congress refuses to even have a debate on the budget, you see, that's a usurpation of the checks and balances. You see it in the Supreme Court. When the Supreme Court creates rights that don't exist in the Constitution out of thin air. And it doesn't matter if they create a right that you agree with or not. That's not the point. The, the point is, is that in doing so, what we're doing is we're tearing down the very checks and balances that say human nature cannot be trusted when it is given power. You remember Lord Acton's famous statement, and that is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. And that's our government was designed to protect the liberty of individuals by limiting the power of the government. So I support fully downstream involvement in po politics and running. But in the end, if the main upstream goal that we should have as followers of Christ, knowing God, is that we protect the checks and balances that exist because nobody should ever be trusted 100% with the power. You know, Ben Shapiro, I've never quoted him before, but uh, he said something that I thought was really quite interesting. He said, the American people have been willing to grant absolute power to anyone they agree with, depending upon whether they have a D or an R next to their name. This needs to stop right now. We need to start thinking as American people systemically. Now, I think what he's talking about is upstream. We need to think more upstream. Mm. He says, he goes on to say, we need to start thinking about systems and the incentive structures that we create for our politicians. It is not about electing the right people. It is not about getting rid of the wrong people. It is about making sure the checks and balances of the American government still work in order to protect the fundamental freedoms that are there because human nature exists and human nature is not trustworthy. So you see, I, I think that's really why I can say, I will talk about this. I will talk about the efficacy of our finding documents. I will talk about the power and purity of Christianity and its influence on the formation of our government because only Christianity is gonna get us out of this mess. And the more that we abandon the underlying upstream core values of Christianity, then the more our country is hell-bent on going to civil war. And that's where it will end up again unless we can turn the tide. And the only way we can turn the tide is return to the upstream values and principles on which our government was founded. 
Well, I mean, that is definitely an upstream concept just in general. I mean, this idea of what our political system is doing and how we can start moving and activating it to be more like it was originally intended in the founding documents, which is, you know, getting rid of this idea that the government should be this controlling monster, but instead that humans are inherently untrustworthy and that there needs to be checks and balances. Um, Mm -hmm. But it seems like that's kind of a long road. Um, What are some things that we can do to kind of help the world become a better place in the here and now while that, because that's going to take a while, right? That's, I don't, I don't imagine that by the next election cycle, they're going to have, we're going to figure that all out and everybody's just going to be hunky dory again. I think it's going to be a long process. What are we, what do we see in helping make the world a better place in the here and now? How does knowing Jesus personally and the understanding that our human nature is untrustworthy kind of influence maybe like charity or, or something of that nature? Yeah, well, I, I guess the original question is where uh, does knowing Jesus make the greatest impact? And the first one is on you personally mm. in your capacity to change and become the best version of yourself. Number two, our body politic, which is our capacity to get along and be at peace with one another and have a, as John Locke would say, a social contract with one another. Otherwise, we quickly tribalize, we fall into cliques and camps, and we hate people, um, and we it, it becomes a war zone, a constant war zone, and mm-hmm. that doesn't help anybody. That war um, is not a good thing on people, you know? And then and finally, it, it removes all compassion and all benevolence and charity from our community. You know, knowing Jesus is critical if we want to Uh, be a compassionate and caring community. I would postulate that any attempt to be a compassionate community without Christ or knowing Jesus personally is an impossibility. And here's what I mean is history is replete with people who did not know Jesus, who thought that they were doing something compassionate, and they thought they were 100% morally correct. These people started off with uh, none other than Lenin in the Bolshevik Revolution, and then the starving of 50,000 Ukrainians to death. He thought he was morally righteous in doing that. Okay, You look at uh, Adolf Hitler in the Nazi regime. His belief that you had to eradicate the gypsies and the Romanians, and the handicapped and the elderly, and then eventually the Jews— was a morally righteous thing to do under his policy, okay? You look at what Mao Zedong did in the Cultural Revolution, and, I mean, he murdered over 40 million of his own people. Just think about that, 40 million people. And they were his people because he drove them back out into agrarian culture, starved many of them to death. And so he did it because he believed without a doubt, that he was morally righteous. So what happens when you lose that absolute, when you lose any objective authority that tells us, wait a second, every whim, every nature, everything you have cannot actually be trusted if it comes from your pure human nature. And that's what compassion and charity and helping people is all about. They are only effective when the ethos of knowing God personally is the foundation of what they are doing, because if you really want to help people, you have to determine the difference between help or hurt. Mm. 
You see, Mao Zedong thought, oh, we're going to build a communist utopia. So what we're going to do is we're going to drive all of these people out of the cities into the rural areas and go back to an agrarian culture because that's really the best thing. And he starved them to death. You know, you have, you have doctors and lawyers and professors going out there that had never heard held a shovel or a pickaxe in their hand, and now they got to grow their own food? <laughs> that did not turn out well, let me tell you. Well, that's because there was no objective standard to say, what is human nature, and how do we help instead of hurt? For instance, today, there are people today that don't know God personally at all who believe that the best way to help a meth addict is to let them take meth. So let's just let them take meth, and that's good for society. Well, what they won't acknowledge is that 80% of all child abuse in the United States is driven by drug addiction, either alcohol or drugs. And so when you have neglect and child abuse, it's almost 100, it's 80% due to chemical abuse on part of the parents. So I don't understand how giving a meth addict more meth is actually going to help them. Now, if you're an atheist or a scientific materialist, oh, it makes perfect sense to you. You know, you're, you're eradicating those poor genes from the gene pool. But that takes into no account the impact on community. So you have to determine the difference between what does it actually mean to help versus hurt. You know, if you go see a doctor and the doctor, you know, you go in and you have cancer and the doctor's belief system is that, well, you dying is good for the world. Do you want that doctor treating you? Well, of course not. And this spills over into the social sciences. You know how many people have trouble in their marriages and they go to a marriage counselor that hates marriage? And so they end up in divorce. And well, what, what do you expect? You see, knowing God is critical to any helping profession because what it does is it tells us the nature of human, what humans are and how you actually help human beings. And so if you abandon that, then any charity is manipulation. Any benevolence is enablement. You're just enabling more bad or hurtful behavior. So I, I think this knowing Jesus personally is critical if you want to be able to do anything to help anyone else. Well, I think that's, I mean, that does definitely give us some very important key points to think about that. This is not just a, this isn't an easy fix thing, but it is definitely, there is a right way to go about helping and that's first having yeah. a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Like, for instance, um, this is kind of how it works. So a person uh, is married and they're at work and they have an affair with their co-worker. Okay. Well, what uh, they lose their family over it and they're divorced. And so they come to a Christian community. Of other term for it would be a church, right? And so now the church can, if it wants to, if it exists as a moralist institution instead of a faith community, it's sit there and say, well, you're not welcome here because you're divorced and you're single and you made a mistake and good luck for you burning in hell. Now, I'd like to point out that this is what the media likes to present the church as, but this is extremely rare. 
the vast majority of churches are, look, if your family's blown up, and even if you're the one who blew it up, you need to come here, and we're going to help you. We're not going to help you by telling you that what you did was right. What we're going to do is we're going to tell you how you can heal from it, change from it, so that you can then discover your new self and be freed from the old self that caused all this damage. And by giving it to God and walking in newness and faith in a relationship with him, he can heal much of the damage. Maybe not all of it, but he can start the healing process if you're willing to work with him. You know, so that, that's how helping people works. And if you take knowing Jesus personally out of that, you fall into one or two extremes. You fall into a community that is very judgmental, but I think, uh, and legalistic, but that's extremely rare in American churches today, especially evangelical churches. That, that exists in some old denominational subgroup churches, but mm. it, it's not prevalent uh, by any means. Or you fall into the other extreme where you become what is known as a permissive church. And that is you steal or remove or dilute the very power of the redemptive act of Christ in a person's life by saying that everything you did and everything you're doing right now is irrelevant. God just loves you. And so that's not knowing God personally. You know, God does love you because he came to save you so you can have a relationship with him. And then that's when you have that relationship where you begin the process of transformation into the best version of yourself. And so, man, if you're a parent and you love your kids and they make mistakes, what do you do? Well, you love them unconditionally, but you, you don't allow them or you, you do everything within the, your power without violating their own free will especially after they're 18, to encourage them to grow and mature into the best version of themselves, right? right. So, that, so in, it's, a very, it's very similar to that, you know? Um, like, you know, another question that I think has really happened a lot in the world, which is not true, is that the world tells people constantly that the church does not accept uh, people who are a part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, I was looking up some research from the Pew Research Center, and they said in 2013, they found that a vast majority of LGBTQ adults regard major faith groups as unfriendly to them. They said that, uh, let me see, 80% saw Christian churches as unfriendly to them and basically saying they don't want them around. But what's really interesting is only 29% of LGBTQ adults have ever reported that they were personally made to feel unwelcome in a religious community. So what does that tell me? That tells me that 80% think it's unfriendly, but only 30% can point to a time where they felt they were, where it was unfriendly, not offended, not uh, abused, not prejudiced against. Just simply from the standpoint of um, uh, unfriendly. Mm. And so what is that? That's a huge, you know, gamut of things you can include in that. But only 29% said they ever experienced that. So 50% uh, have never had that. So where does that perception come from? You see, it comes from the world. And the world is trying to build that into them. So... You know, let's say in uh, Foothills, you know, if let's say a person identifies as a lesbian 
and they, they come to Foothills. And they were to talk to me. I'd say, well, look, what I think is not pertinent or relevant to your journey of faith. What is pertinent to your journey of faith is your search in knowing Jesus personally. So if you say to me, I want to be able to go to a place where someone is sharing with me the truth of Christ, teaching the Bible, you're going to find that here. We will help you to be accepted here. I think our church would accept anybody who's seeking Jesus, regardless of where they're from. This is a deep value of our church. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. You can participate. On the other hand, though, if you say, I want to go to a place that tells me I'm fine and my identity can be built around my sexual orientation, then that would be hurtful to you. See, it's a difference between are we here to help or are we here to hurt? And what we want to do is we don't want to fall into that other extreme on the other side, which is a permissiveness that dilutes and removes the very power of God. This is what Paul talked about when he told Timothy, he goes, be careful that you don't dilute the gospel because people will hold to a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. Well, what's its power? Well, the power of the gospel is to connect us personally to God. And if we lose the power of the gospel, then we no longer have that connection, that intimate relationship with our Lord and Creator. Well, you've given us a lot to think about today, Pastor, and uh, we are out of time. But um, oh, darn. I encourage uh, our viewing and our listening audience to have some conversations about this, about how these uh, this idea of really knowing Jesus could radically change um, everything basically in your life, but especially uh, as an upstream concept could change a lot of things like um, these politics we were talking about earlier, things of that nature, if we just adhere to this essential principle. So I think that's given mm -hmm. us some food for thought to go into the weekend. Um, Pastor, we pray that you have a safe flight home and we will see you on stage on Sunday, right? Oh, I'll be there and I will have uh, a tremendously enthusiastic time talking about this particular biblical subject. I have no doubt. Well, thank you so much viewers for joining us and we will see you on Sunday here at Foothills Christian Church.